0: Revelation chapter one, verses nine through 20, which reads, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Uh, So last week, you know, we looked at a portrait of the real Jesus as he is unveiled, as he's described here in Revelation 1. Uh, And we saw that Jesus is our high and present priest. He's our unshakable king, and he is our fearsome judge. And what I want to do this morning is I want us to pause and slow down for a moment and just really consider the massive implications of this portrait. It's not often that we'll Preach like the same text twice in a row, but I thought it'd be appropriate for us to do on the front end of our Revelation series because this vision of Jesus, this vision of the uh, the real Jesus, the the unfiltered, unadulterated, unveiled Lord Jesus Christ, uh, is so central and so paramount to our understanding of the rest of the Book of Revelation. <laughs> And so I want us to consider just this morning the massive implications that we have of this portrait that we talked about last week. Two things that we're going to see in this text is that this vision of Jesus confronts us and it comforts us. That's basically our outline for this morning, that this revelation portrait of the real Jesus will both confront us, and it will comfort us. Revelation portrait of the real Jesus will both confront us and comfort us. It confronts our short-sighted assumptions, and it comforts us in our greatest anxieties. And so that's where we're going this morning. It'll be a shorter sermon, so let me pray for us, and we'll go ahead and dive right in. Uh, God, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful just for the freedom and privilege that we have uh, to gather as your people in a place like this, to sing songs unto our Lord Jesus, to read your word, and to invite you, Holy Spirit, to just change us and transform us more into the image of Christ our Lord. We ask, God, that you would do what is impossible for us, but desired by you, that by the end of our time, we would look more like Christ than when we first arrived. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So by way of review, what's happening is that in the book of Revelation, as this is being written uh, to the churches uh, uh, that are receiving this letter from John, what's happening is that the church is not doing well. They're being persecuted for their faith because not too much long, not too much earlier. Uh, Roman ruler by the name of Nero had blamed a lot of Rome's hardships and Rome's calamities on Christians, right? Like, someone had to take responsibility, and he's like, it's not going to be me, so let's blame it on the Christians. And then John, the author of Revelation, he's really not doing well. Like, every single other apostle John was one of the original apostles, and every other apostle had been martyred by this point. He, John, has been exiled to Patmos, this island, this Mediterranean Alcatraz, where he's being tortured and suffering. (laughs) And at the time he's writing this, Nero's successor, Domitian, was preparing to release an even worse persecution than the one that Nero unleashed. Domitian was going to uh, release a persecution against Jesus' followers, against all of them, unless they recanted and said that they would worship Caesar instead. And if they failed to do so, he was gonna unleash this persecution against the church uh, that was unlike any persecution that had been seen prior. And so John, from his prison island of Patmos, sees the dark... Clouds, a metaphorical dark clouds, sort of looming on the horizon. Things are about to get crazy, and it's at that moment that Jesus appears to John in the Spirit, and Jesus gives John a revelation of who He truly is in the midst of all this of who he really is in the midst of all this and what he's doing in the middle of all these hard things that John is going through and the churches are going through. And to be clear, you and I are not facing the same kinds of hardship and persecution that the first century church did, right? Like it's not illegal for us to be a follower of Jesus here in this great nation today, although there are some places today where it is illegal to be a follower of Jesus. But we don't experience that. However, we do still ask some of the same questions when the dark storm clouds are looming on the horizon and we're wondering like, man, is this, is this suffering going to be the end of me? Is this anxiety, this depression ever going to let up? When will this end? Will this destroy me? Those are the same kinds of questions that they were asking back then that in our context today we can ask uh, currently. And so what Revelation 1 does is it reveals a portrait of the real Jesus. Jesus unveiled in all his glory. He is unveiled and revealed to be awesome and powerful and in control. And untouchable and he's gonna win in the end let's look at the passage uh, honing in on verses 12 through 16 John says that he turned to see the voice that was speaking to him and on turning he saw seven golden lampstands later on he he would say that these lampstands represent the churches that exist at the time And so he turns and he sees these seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of those lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, which was priestly garments that we know from the Old Testament the hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow his eyes were like a flame of fire his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters he's like this unshakable untouchable king In verse 16, it says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. He's like the fearsome judge who's come to undo all the bad things, to make right all the wrong things. And when we look at this portrait of Jesus, we have to admit that when you take these descriptions like literally it's kind of a strange picture right it's an odd picture it's because there's a lot of Old Testament references there's a lot of metaphorical imagery people artists throughout the centuries have tried to paint portraits of this Jesus and the product is always just like odd because The metaphors that are being chosen here are just so otherworldly. They're so unlike any description that you could give to any other, any created person. So here's the first thing I want us to consider from this text, is that this portrait of Jesus, it confronts us. It confronts us. It, it pushes against our assumptions. It prods at us. It confronts us. It challenges us. What it does with all the weird metaphorical imagery, what this passage does is it forces us to ask the question, like, man, do I really know Jesus? Do I really know Jesus? And it's not that, like, hey, the Jesus that I have in my head doesn't look like this Jesus. It's not so much about the physical aspects of him. But even if you were to paint in your mind with all the wonderful things that you know about the Lord Jesus, if you were to paint a portrait of him using metaphorical imagery, would it be as crazy and gnarly and fearsome as what we just read? And so this passage really forces us to ask, like, man, do I really know Jesus? Do I really know how awesome he is? Like, when you read these verses, you're not thinking of, like, any created person, as awesome as they might be, right? You're not thinking, when you read this description, like, oh, this reminds me. This, this in a metaphorical way, reminds me of, like, the great minister, like, Bill, Billy Graham, Right? Or you're not saying, this reminds me of like a political leader like George Washington or Barack Obama or Ronald Reagan or even the heroes of our imagination, right? Like we're not thinking like, oh yeah, this is how I would describe Superman or Captain America. No, the unveiled portrait that Jesus gives us of himself is just something else entirely. It's something that even is out of our worldly imagination, even transcends our worldly imaginations. What he's doing is he's confronting our tendency to want to make Jesus into our own image. Or to want to make Jesus look like just a better uh, version of ourselves. Which I think if we're not careful That's our tendency. Like go ahead and think of who it is that we tend to esteem as our heroes, right? I'm not, it doesn't have to be from the Bible, right? Just think of like who we tend to think of, who you tend to think of as like your heroes, the people that you look up to, the people that you aspire to. I want you to picture whoever that is in your mind and consider what are their qualities. And what you'll find is that when we esteem and when we venerate our heroes, it's typically because they end up valuing the same things that we do, just maybe a little bit more perfectly. They value the same things that we already do. Goodness and justice, maybe, as we define it. And so what ends up happening is we end up creating an image of Jesus that already affirms the things that we do a Jesus that is made in our own image instead of the other way around. You see, but if Jesus is only someone who looks like you and sounds like you, if Jesus is only someone who would affirm the same values that you have, but never challenge you or confront you, then you can't really consider him your Lord in any true sense of that word then you don't really have him as your Lord and as your Savior. What you have him as is a mirror. You see, Jesus himself explained that the reason he did this in the Gospel of John, he explained that the reason that his nature and character confronts us, kind of rubs us the wrong way sometimes, is because he is not of this world which makes sense, right? He's the son of God. You see, once you embrace that truth, once you concede to that truth, once you embrace that truth that Jesus is the son of God, the image of the invisible God, then that changes everything. It should change everything for you. Everything, once you concede to that fact that he's the son of God who is not of this world, That came to be Lord over us, that came to save us from ourselves. Once you embrace that truth, then everything that you think about who you are, everything that you think about why you are, about what this world is here for, about what in the world you're here for, it all changes. It's impossible for your world to be the same once you embrace that truth because it rocks you to your core. And so, maybe a good question for us to ask at this point is what area in your life does Jesus tend to confront? What are the areas of your life, the values that you hold? the habits that you repeat, the thoughts that you entertain, what are those things in your life that Jesus tends to confront? What areas are you holding on to that maybe you need to give up in order to truly follow him? What ways of thinking need to change in order for you to follow him? You see, the big irony is that the Jesus that you shape that just fits in with your own desires and values, can't really be your Lord in any real sense of that word. Like, he can't confront you. He can't transform you. He can't change you because he's just you. You made him in your own image. And in Revelation 1, in the verses we just read, John is pointing to a Christ who does not fit into our little mirrors. If your idea of Jesus can never say that you're wrong, can never be an authority on how you spend your money, who you have sex with, what ambitions you pursue, then you don't have a true God. What you have is 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 a Jesus who's kind of more like your assistant or your consultant or your feel-good guru. Does the Jesus that you believe in ever confront you? Does he ever change your mind? Does he ever push you to love others and sacrifice for them? Does he ever lead you to repentance? Does he ever lead you to say, I think I'm wrong about this. And I need to change my mind. If not, then the big warning of Revelation chapter 1 is that you might be using Jesus rather than worshiping him. You might be using Jesus to serve your own cultural idols, you might be using him to esteem your own virtues while you ignore your own vices. Sometimes, in an attempt at self-awareness you might try to be like hey, I'm going to try and be self-aware here and so I'm going to avoid the extremes of both sides because that's what we, we think Jesus would do, right? Like, and so you see yourself as a balance of both. Like I'm a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I'm a little truth and I'm also a little grace. I'm a little conservative. I'm also a little progressive. And we, we tend to, to, when we do that, we, we tend to see Jesus that way too, that he's just a, a balance of our cultural extremes. But the problem with that is that, that that's how you're measuring where you think Jesus is at, is as the balance of two cultural extremes, is that then you're, you're still using the culture to tell you where Jesus is at and what he looks like. But this Revelation 1 portrait of the real Jesus shows us that he's not always just a balanced view of you and me, of left and right. He's something else altogether. That if you were to try and paint a metaphorical portrait of who he is, it would look strange because he transcends all our earthly categories. And so if you want to know the biblical position on a cultural issue like gender and sexuality or social justice or racism and politics, it's not about finding a balance between the two different opposite polarizing sides, it's about something else altogether, It's about looking at Christ pouring into his word, allowing him to confront us, allowing him to confront our culture and tell us what we should believe about what is true and good and beautiful. By the way, this is why I think a lot of young Christians today find themselves politically homeless. Because we're a Christian should feel most at home is not in any one political party. Both of those parties, by the way, are constantly changing on their platforms. They ebb and flow along with the culture. And so where Christians should feel most at home is not in any one political party, but in the king and his Kingdom. And so if you're drawn to conservatism, what you need is not a dash of progressivism. If you're drawn to progressivism, what you need is not a dose of conservatism. You need a vision of the transcendent king and his unshakable kingdom. And once you have that picture, you'll often find yourself at odds with anyone shaped predominantly by the culture. He's an entirely different category altogether. I want you to see again how John responded to this vision of Jesus. At the beginning of verse 17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He experienced dread. Overwhelming dread. Now, I want you to keep in mind that this is like the first time that John has seen Jesus since, uh, since Jesus' ascension uh, during his earthly ministry, like after he rose from the grave and he spent time with his disciples, uh, prepared them for his leaving, taught them more about the Holy Spirit, and then, and then he ascended on high. Like this was the first time that John has seen Jesus since then, like they had some history. And they were really close while, they were, while Jesus was on earth. They were like BFFs, just hanging out all the time. In the Gospel of John, John confidently refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved, which is kind of hilarious. <laughs> I feel like it takes a lot of nerve to call yourself the one that Jesus loved. It's like, yeah, hey, Jesus likes you. He likes you too, but I'm his favorite, Right. But in reality, in actuality, that phrase describing himself as the one that Jesus loved was just John's way of expressing just complete and utter amazement that Jesus loved him at all, that he loved him to the very end. You see, John knew Jesus, and he knew him well. He's the one in the, pic- in the portrait of the, the Last Supper, and he's described this way in... Um, in some of the Gospel accounts, but he's the one that you see uh, that looks, looks younger uh, and he's laying down on Jesus's breast at the Last Supper. Right, that's the level of intimacy that they had as friends. I don't have a lot of friends who would do that to me at dinner, <laughs> but you know who would? It's my son. My son would, and that's the kind of relationship that John had with Jesus. And yet, here, he sees this unfiltered, unveiled vision of the risen Jesus Christ, and he falls over as dead. You know what I think that tells us? I think that tells us that there is infinitely more. To the Lord Jesus Christ than what we've already seen, already learned, already discovered and experienced. He is inexhaustible and we need more and more of a clear vision of who he really is. You see what Revelation is doing at this point before John gets around to what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with the church and where we're all headed, is he's trying to show us that everything, everything about where the world is going and what's wrong with everything and like, like everything is being framed around this vision of Christ and his unveiled glory. I think the purpose here about putting this on the front end of the book, the front end of his letter is to just stir our hearts in reverence to him this is meant to give us a healthy dose of courage this vision of christ in the midst when we see those dark clouds looming in it's meant to make us unafraid in a world that is already overcome by this great god regardless of who you think Is the greatest threat to you, regardless of who you think is the greatest threat to the church or to the nation that you live in, this world has already been overcome by the real Jesus. You see what we need in the middle of hard things and in the middle of hard seasons is more of Jesus, more of his stability, more of his presence, a greater picture of his strength and his sovereignty. Christ's desire is to be with us. He wills to be with us, but not as anything less of who he really is. And nothing less than who he really is will satisfy us and comfort us. And so that leads us to our final point, that it's only by being confronted by this Christ that we can find true comfort. It's only by being confronted by this vision of Christ that we can find true comfort. Read verse 17 and 18 with me again. He says, John says, "'When I saw him, I felt his feet as though dead, "'but he laid his right hand on me, saying, "'Fear not, I am the first and the last.'" and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. You see, Christ, he comes down, this great picture of who he is, this awesome vision of who he truly is, and what Christ does is he comes down, he extends his right hand, he touches John, and he says, fear not. Don't be afraid. Let me tell you, only a Christ who is big enough like this has the authority to say, fear not, and have that be real, true, and lasting comfort for you. Think of John's suffering in this moment. He's on a prison island. He's on Patmos. He's waiting to die. He's probably wondering, like, feel like why shouldn't I be afraid, right? All the other followers of Jesus, all the other OG followers, the other apostles, like they—they're they're all been martyred by now, and I seem to be next. Why shouldn't I be afraid? And look, maybe that's how you look at it sometimes. You look around with the effects of this last year's pandemic, just the political turmoil that's still ravaging some of our families, our nations, some of our friendships, and, and even our church. You look at your situation right now with, with money, with relationships, with anxiety or depression, and and maybe you're asking that question. You're looking at all these things. You're looking at the dark clouds looming in, and you're wondering, like, man, why shouldn't I be afraid? Why shouldn't I be anxious? Things out there look terrible. But this Christ, this Christ that we We're just given a portrait of, when he says, fear not, you know that this Christ and only this Christ can truly save us. And John knows that. He knows that, and it's through his experience of being confronted by Jesus and all his unveiled glory that John receives the words, fear not, don't be afraid, and it's only when standing before the one who holds the universe in his hands that those words, fear not, mean anything to him. We need a Jesus that is big enough, to knock down our cultural idols. We need a Jesus that's big enough to outlast our greatest fears. We need a Jesus that's big enough to knock down our personal kingdoms, to destroy our false assumptions of him, our too little assumptions of him. And so when that Jesus says, fear not, he really means it, and he really has the authority to say so because he's the one, as John says, that holds the keys to death and Hades. He holds the keys to death and even hell. In other words, like even hell and death itself has no, out, has no power outside his sovereign dominion. He's got the keys to those things. I remember uh, just as a kid like one of these one of these things we used to do on on the weekend and in, in, in the summer with all these like new developments like like going up as we'd visit like all these housing developments and just be like oh yeah look at this house and oh, what if we had that pool and what if we lived in this neighborhood and it was just it was fun right just to dream about those things but at the end of the day As soon as you drive away without the keys to that house, it all means nothing, right? (laughs) Because the one with the keys is the one with the power. The one who holds the keys is the one who has ownership. He's the one who has dominion. He's the one that has real power. And so when Jesus reveals that he holds the keys... To death and Hades, and when He's the one that says, "Fear not, don't be afraid," I man that means something. That means something. In verse eighteen, He says, "I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore." No one else can say that. No one else can say that they reversed the plight of death. Jesus is the one who bosses death around. He's the one who holds death's key. He's the one who tells death, the great equalizer, the one great enemy of us all, what to do. And he has the authority to do so because he holds the key. Where's John when Jesus shows himself? He falls over dead. He's afraid. Where's Jesus when that happens? With an outstretched arm his right hand outstretched, the one whom death and hell won't even mess around with reached out to John and said, don't be afraid. The one who conquers evil, sin, and death is gentle and lowly towards us. And instead of being consumed, and incinerated by this vision of Jesus, John is comforted. He's at peace. I know that many of you um, read that book uh, a few months ago by Dane Ortlund uh, in, our, in our prospective book clubs. He wrote this book called Gentle and Lowly. It uh, came out last year. That's all about Jesus' posture towards us. About his heart and character towards us, the one place in Matthew, I think, it's eleven, where he Jesus describes his own heart and character towards us. The one place he describes his own heart, he says that it's gentle and lowly, which is a way of saying that we cannot out sin his gentleness, and that when we sin, he can't ungentle himself towards us anymore than, as Dane Orland says, any more than than we can change the color of our eyes. Look, is this Jesus that John saw? Is he the fearsome judge? Yes, absolutely. But to those who come to Christ in repentance and lowliness and neediness, he is gentle and lowly. it's hard to grasp when you read a passage like this where it says Jesus' mouth is like a sword coming out. Because <coughs> we, we project onto Jesus our skewed instincts of what it means to be a fearsome judge. Because in our mind, the rich condescend on the poor. In our minds and in our experience, the beautiful look down on the ugly. And so we assume that this God is put off by our ugliness. But the biblical witness is unmistakable. It actually says that the one who is unspeakably brilliant, the Jesus of Revelation 1, (coughs) the Jesus of the Scriptures, that he is gentle and lowly towards us, that the majestic Christ who holds all the churches in his right hand, with that same right hand, he touches John and says, Fear not. He's transcendent. He's untouchable. He holds us in His right hand, and yet He comes down to our level with an outstretched arm and says, "Don't be afraid." (laughs) I love this picture we get from the psalmist in Psalm 16. Read verse Psalm 16 verses eight through eleven with me. He says, I've set the Lord always before me. (laughs) He's talking about the Lord here, the God, Yahweh. I've set the Lord always before me, and because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. (laughs) Therefore... My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, the Lord, Yahweh, the great I Am, the one with the unshakable kingdom, the fearsome judge, the one who can make my flesh dwell secure. He's at my right hand telling me, don't be afraid. And it's the fact that I'm at His right hand experiencing pleasures forevermore is just mind-boggling. You see, John is doing the same thing in Revelation, and Christ's right hand is the church. We are, tr- we, we see this vision of him, this transcendent Christ, and in his right hand is the church. And with his right hand, he's lifting up the church. He's sustaining the church. He's keeping the church. But also, Christ <coughs> is at John's right hand. He's right there like the perfect high priest he's present he's involved the point i think that john wants us to get is that we need to pay attention to this reality if we want to have any real hope in this world you see this reality of the this vision of christ this isn't a potential reality this is true reality and to hear jesus say fear not is the truest way for the Christian to live in this world without fear and with hope. You see, when we're when we're afraid and just kinda sit in our fears, what we're saying is man, all this hard stuff, this is just how it is. When we're cynical what we're also saying is, I mean, all this hard stuff going on, like this, this is just kind of how it is. But after receiving a new vision of Christ, like John gives us at the beginning of Revelation, the best, the truest, the most realistic response is to not be afraid and to be hopeful and to say, this is actually not how things really are. Christ has victory over all. That might not be the easiest and most natural response for us, but I think John knows that. And that's why what he's doing here by starting with this vision of Christ is so key to our understanding of Revelation, because you need supernatural eyes to see the portrait of Christ. But you've got to see it because it's the truest reality this majestic God with fiery eyes who holds the world and the church in his hands and who also is gentle and lowly with us, giving us courage to not be afraid. The more we intellectually connect the dots between our reality and the greater reality, the more that we press in to see clearer A bigger and picture, a bigger picture of Christ, the more we will have an experiential grasp of this vision. You know what I mean by that? That means that an experiential grasp of it means that you don't just intellectually receive it, but that it changes your actual experience in this world. And so here's my prayer for us. My prayer is that we would feel confronted by a vision of who Christ is, but at the same time feel touched and comforted to fear not and not be afraid. That's what this passage is. It's a vision designed to give us a picture of the truest reality, that Christ is our present High Priest, our gentle and lowly High Priest. He's also our unshakable King. He's also the fearsome judge of the world. And our problems, our sufferings, got nothing on him. They might be big, but he's bigger. They might be scary, but he holds the keys. They might be hard, but he is sovereignly using them for our good, and for His purposes. And He's gonna win in the end. That's why we need this portrait of the real Jesus. It's time to stop shouting at our sufferings and start gazing at our Savior. What we need to do is press into every aspect of this truest reality, believing His words to be true. And seeing that worship isn't just the songs that we sing like before and after the sermon, that worship can be a weapon that pierces through the clouds of darkness and brings us back into the light of His grace. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, We'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations, or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.